0: I want to say uh, welcome to Journey, especially if you're a guest with us maybe here for the very first time. Way to go. Uh, we're delighted to worship God with you this first weekend of the new year, and I just want to say good job prioritizing the God piece of you. We talked a little bit about that last weekend. I also want to say great job to the cat men last night. Way to go. woo about those cats? I would have gone, but I had this pesky little work thing, so was, I couldn't go but good job. And today we start the series, Brandon alluded to, that we call Finding Faith in the Movies. And it's a series where we want to talk about matters of faith that are raised in movies that you might not think are the sources of matters of faith. And we're starting today with the film 300. Raise your hand if you've seen the film 300. Yeah, that's a lot of you out there that have seen it. I took this one, uh, put a little twist on this one, I don't normally do this, but I said to our creative team, these are the folks, there's this team of people who help us with creativity, all things creative around here, I said, hey, we want to do this series called Finding Faith in the Movies, and I want you to pick the movies, I want the team to pick the movies, and I want you to tell me what movies we're going to do for this four week run because I told him I said if I pick them I've got my biases you know I've got four movies in my head right now and they'd be real easy for but challenge me like give me some like like throw some tough stuff at me you know so here's 300 and I literally I hadn't seen the movie until Wednesday morning I literally had not watched the movie until Wednesday morning and holy cow wow it's rated R, and it's rated R for good reason, so, you know, like, don't, don't go rent this and pop it in and say, all right, family, we're going to pop some popcorn. Watch, this. it's not, that. I've never seen so many heads cut off in, in my whole life, I was like, whoa, and, and like, the use of slow motion, like, holy, like, it's going out of style, like, everything is in slow motion, you know, blood spurting in slow motion, just,
1: whoa, wow.
0: And in this movie, 300, this guy named Gerard Butler, he plays the character Leonidas, who is the wise king of Sparta. He is raised with the utmost of ideals, honor and duty and glory. Leonidas is actually a brilliant military strategist. He's an egalitarian champion of personal freedom and such. And so one day when the news arrives from Persia that heralds Xerxes' sovereignty over Sparta he rebuffs that declaration and announces to his countrymen that they must fight and fight hard to preserve their way of life. Unfortunately, though, these Spartan elders, these bizarre, I I don't know what else to call them other than bizarre, these Spartan elders, they honor this ancient and fickle belief system that prohibits Leonidas from challenging the impending Persian hordes that are invading. Ever concerned for the safety and freedom of his people, Leonidas enlists 300 soldiers, thus the title of the film, 300. They declared them his personal bodyguards, and he mounts this valiant defense against Xerxes and his limitless armies. Meanwhile, Leonidas' wife, the queen, she attempts to employ more diplomatic means to solicit support from the Spartan council, even as this sort of not-so-good character named Theron poisons its members to her plan from within the council. And the simplicity of the plot is, I think, the film's greatest virtue. Rather than languishing in the little details of military strategy or inundating us with the subtleties of Spartan politics and such, 300 paints the picture of the story in very big, very broad strokes. For example, in the film's opening sequence that we're about to show you, much edited, just so you know, it introduces rather simply the cultural tradition that inspired larger-than-life figures like Leonidas. Great men, see, they're born and they're bred. They're nurtured in their natural abilities and trained to serve very specific purposes. Indeed, this sequence that we're about to see not only explains everything one needs to know about the hero, Leonidas, but it also reveals for us the origins of his masterful battle strategy, not to mention the Spartan philosophical ideals upon which all of this is based. I invite you to turn your attention to the side screens. Watch this.
1: When the boy was born, like old Spartans, he was inspected. From the time he could stand, he was baptized in the fire of combat. never to retreat never to surrender toward the death on the battlefield in service to Sparta was the greatest glory he could achieve in his life at age seven as is customary in Sparta. The boy was taken from his mother and plunged into a world of violence. The Agogi, as it's called, forces the boy to fight, starves them, forces them to steal, and if necessary, to kill. Constantly tested, tossed into the wild, Left to pit his wits and will against nature's fury. It was his initiation, his time in the wild. For he would return to his people a Spartan. Or well, not at all. Answer the boy. Given up for dead, returns to his people, to sacred Sparta, a king, our king, Leonidas!
0: See, from the moment that Leonidas was born, he was in training to be what every Spartan man was a soldier. It absolutely consumed him. Every waking minute was devoted to becoming a better, more equipped, stronger, more intense, more devoted, more fearsome, more brave soldier. And it paid off, didn't it? Leonidas took that 300 men who had all trained as diligently and as fervently as he had and very valiantly defended Greece against Xerxes' innumerable armies. Our big idea for today says this. Godliness? It isn't something we simply stumble into. Rather, godliness takes rigorous training. See, I know that in a room like this, on a day like this, the whole spectrum of spiritual interest is represented. Some of us in this room have been Christ followers, have been Christians for a very, very long time, which is just great. Some of us in this room have very recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. Cool, like in the last year, like way to go. Some of us in this room have yet to step across the line of faith in Jesus as our Savior and our boss. I want to say to you, way to go. Way to be here. Way to be investigating the claims of Christ. Some of you sitting in this room have decided that it's the first of the year. And at the turning of the calendar, it's a good time to begin to investigate the claims of Jesus and Christianity. Like, way to go. We absolutely love that around here. And we will serve you to the end in that direction. Way to go. But for the next few moments, I want to talk to people in this room who are, have been Christians before now. People who are not investigating the claims of Christianity. People who have yet to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ. You're exempt from what I'm going to talk about for the next few moments. Okay, So you can just like turn me, turn me right out, if you'd like, for the next few moments. And as I watch this film 300... I could not help but compare the life of a Spartan soldier to the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. See, there is this intensity about Spartan soldiers, isn't there? Spartan soldiers, they are hungry to improve their skills. Spartan soldiers, they work diligently to amp up their fighting prowess. Spartan soldiers didn't just expect to stumble or happen into becoming the most fierce fighting force on planet Earth. No way. They trained for it. They set goals and they executed plans to bring those goals into reality. And as I held that intensity and that hunger and that diligence and all of that training, the goal execution of those Spartan soldiers, like the ones we see in the film 300, up against the intensity and the hunger and the diligence and the training and the goal execution of we who follow Jesus and our spiritual growth, and our pace of change, my very own included, I was immensely convicted. Immensely convicted. In First Timothy of the Bible, Paul, who's one of the primary writers of the New Testament, he's writing to a young leader, a guy who he mentored, a guy named Timothy. That's the name of the book, First Timothy, to encourage and instruct him in deeper matters of faith. And in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Paul writes these words that I literally could not shake off as I watched the movie 300. You can turn your Bibles there if you'd like, or you can follow along on the side screens. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 reads like this, train yourself to be godly, Paul writes. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and in the life to come. You see, the men of Sparta, they were in constant training to be the very best soldiers they could be. Lots of us sitting in this room today, we're in training, maybe for some upcoming athletic event, or maybe we're in the midst of some athletic season at the moment. Maybe we're just in training to stay in shape, to be the very best we can be physically. Lots of us sitting in this room, we have jobs that require a certain level of ongoing training to keep us at the top of our professional game. And we do all that stuff in these other sectors of our life, but for very many Christians, we miss Paul's instruction to train yourself to be godly. We do it in these other spheres of our life, but we forget about it when it comes to our spiritual growth and development. And as a result of that, we miss out on much of what God has in mind for us to become, Let's dive into this text a bit and unpack it a piece at a time and discover what's in view. The first chunk, point number one on your outline, is train yourself to be godly, Paul writes. In the original language, which is interestingly Greek, The word that Paul used here for the word train comes from the very same word from which we get our word, gymnasium and gymnastics, words of the like. The emphasis is on the very same level, see, of rigorous, strenuous, self-sacrificing training that an athlete undergoes, except physical training isn't the end goal. Godliness, see, is the end goal not physical fitness. And what Paul does here in First Timothy is play off a very culturally popular occurrence to communicate this very profound spiritual truth to us. See, in Paul's day, physical fitness was all the rage, much like it's all the rage these days. In Paul's day, all over Greece, gymnasiums were filled to capacity. Those gyms were filled primarily with young men between the ages of 16 and 18 or so, who spent the majority of their free time at the gym in physical training because of the very strong emphasis in Greek culture on physical glory, athletic competition, and the like. There's a very similar emphasis in our culture today, you would all agree. These days we're spending enormous sums of money on health and physical fitness. We're investing huge dollars in very, very sophisticated equipment that tracks stuff like heart rates and measures blood pressure, measures body fat and the like. I heard this week, though about a man who argues that he can save all of us large sums of money when it comes to measuring the percentage of body fat that we carry. And he writes these words, If you really insist on knowing the fat content of your body, I've developed a method that won't cost you a cent, nor will it subject you to a tank full of water, nor to little calipers pinching all over your body. He says, here's how it works. The very next time you get out of the shower, you could try this today at home on your own. You could do this all by yourself. The next time you get out of the shower, grab a stopwatch. You all have one laying around your house. Grab a stopwatch and stand in front of a full-length mirror, buck naked. Then start the stopwatch, stomp your foot on the floor as hard as you can, and watch the mirror very carefully. And when stuff stops moving, stop the stopwatch and check the time. The guy who offers that suggestion for measuring body fat content says he's down to two days, three hours, and six minutes. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, Paul leverages his awareness of the Greek culture. He uses a term that Timothy, all of his other readers, would have been very familiar with to get to a much more important concept. He takes that word train out of the physical realm and applies it, see, to our spiritual development. The nudge, see, from Paul is that we train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. In the original language, even the verb tense that Paul used for that word train indicates that training for godliness is to be a constant pursuit of we who follow Jesus. It isn't an occasional thing that we swing into it is a constant, ongoing pursuit of we who follow Jesus Christ. What is godliness, some ask. What, what is godliness, after all? It's very simply true spiritual virtue reflected in behavior. That's godliness. True spiritual virtue reflected in behavior. And training for godliness is always active versus passive. It is always active versus passive. None of us would be able, it would expect to be able to lose weight and get in shape and get ripped like the soldiers are in the film 300 by like canceling our gym membership and devoting more hours in our day to eating potato chips and sitting on the couch doing nothing, would we? We just would not expect that. The same is true when it comes to our training for godliness. Neither physical fitness nor godliness is going to happen to us by osmosis, by being passive. Both require activity, intense activity. If we're going to have abs like the dudes do in the film 300, ladies, you might just should stay away from that film, all right? I'm banning it at my house because I just can't compete with that. Dana doesn't get to watch it. If we're going to have abs or attempt to have abs like those soldiers have, We're going to have to engage a certain set of muscles through a certain set of exercises, aren't we? If we're going to be godly, if our lives are going to be marked by true spiritual virtue that's reflected and fleshed out in behavior, then we're going to have to do some things that bring that into reality. How do you do that? You might start by developing a personal spiritual growth plan. If you're like, what in the world is that? I'd invite you to pick up a CD from last weekend. I unpacked it a bit there. A bit of my own personal spiritual growth plan for 2008. And you'd see those six things in there, six or seven things, those questions that I'm asking and answering about how I'm working to grow up in faith. I talked specifically about my prayer life last weekend in that message. And you could apply it to your own spiritual growth. Maybe you have yet to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ. But you've resolved in 2008 that you're going to answer some of those questions. That's a personal spiritual growth plan. So put those questions down and then set yourself on a course of asking and answering those questions. What's it going to take to get those questions answered? Who am I going to have to call on to help me answer those questions and walk along into that? Maybe if you've been a Christ follower for a long, long time... It's going to be about setting ourselves on an increasing course of godliness training. Setting ourselves on a course toward increasing spiritual growth. And that might, be, that might include, but not be limited to, a study, for example, of all of the texts in the Bible that speak to the characteristics of godliness. Now, I'm not just talking about finding scriptures in the Bible that talk about godliness and reading them okay? It's more than just reading them. How often can we just read the Bible and have it be entirely passive? Sure, we're reading words on a page, and we read a whole bunch of words on a page of the Bible sometimes, and we get to the end. This happens to me. We get to the end and go like, wow, what what did that even say, right? That's passively reading the Bible. I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about like getting a concordance, an online one or one in a book and looking up the word godliness in there and then going to the text that it gives you and unpacking those verses. Like spend a week on one verse. The characteristics of godliness are they're all over the Bible, especially the New Testament and saying they are these things and like, okay, what, what does that look like in my life? What does that look like? Like mining down, not just passively reading the Bible, engaging the text, letting it wash over you, meditating on it, thinking on it. The second thing that you might do is keep very short accounts with God through prayer and through listening on the aspects of our behavior that are ungodly. Like as you're ruminating on those texts, you're gonna see the characteristics that you want to aspire to, and then you're also gonna notice things in your life that are the opposite of those things, right? Ah, there's that lust thing again. Ah, there's that gossip thing again. That's not godliness in my life. And so you take those up with God right then and right there. God, that lust thing, I want to be done with that. Will you help me get rid of that entirely, please? And you just conduct a little confession right there with God. And you say, will you help me get away from that, that gossip thing? God, I'm tired of that. I want to put that behind me. Help me with that. And instead, God, would you plant these characteristics that you're mining out of the text into my life? Let them take deep root. God, I want these things, these traits, these characteristics in my life. A couple of things you might do. One more that you might do is you might add a small group of people to your life who are pressing in with you and who know you well enough and who you have invited close in enough to your life to challenge the behaviors that they see in your life that are ungodly. And they're calling you out on those things. Hopkins, I saw that in you. That is not godliness. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay, so I don't want to go there anymore. Will you help me to that end? Those are a few things that you might do to set yourself on a course of increasing training in godliness. But notice, it is very active. It is not at all passive. It's very active. And it's real common for us to take a very passive approach to our training in godliness. There's a lot of talk these days about a very common business practice that's called outsourcing. You've all heard about outsourcing. That means you hire an outside organization to do something inside of your organization that's considered to be too expensive or too complicated, too far outside the knowledge base of your organization, or simply too time-consuming for your own group to do itself. And so you send it out. You outsource. But in the same way, lots of Christ followers attempt to outsource our own training in godliness. We try to make it somebody else's responsibility. It's very common to shift our training in godliness from our shoulders to our spouse's shoulders, perhaps. It's very common to shift our training in godliness to the, outsource that to the pastor of our church, to the leaders of our church. But see, training in godliness is not at all outsourceable. We can't do it. It doesn't work. Instead, we have the opportunity to see our spouse and our church, our pastors, our leaders, our close friends in the very same way that an athlete sees a physical trainer. A physical trainer raises awareness, helps a person develop a plan, refines the plan with that person, encourages the athlete on in their training. But the trainer, see, cannot vicariously train on behalf of the athlete. At the end of the day, the responsibility for our training in godliness falls squarely on our shoulders. It's not something that I can do for you, nor can anyone else do it for you. We can certainly, around Journey Church, fill the role of personal trainer at very best. But ultimately, it's you who has to do the heavy lifting to build stronger spiritual muscles. Point two on your outline is this. Paul says physical training is good. But training for godliness is much better. And right here, Paul continues this theme, comparing and contrasting training for godliness and physical training. He's holding them up next to each other. And throughout the centuries since this text has been written, commentators and preachers alike have done hilarious things with this text. With varying degrees of emphasis, they've tried to make this verse say, well, see, Paul was advising Timothy here to get himself some exercise and stay physically fit. Or they say, well, Paul was de emphasizing and demeaning athletic training. But that's not at all what is in view here. Rather, Paul is saying that training for godliness is so important that it far surpasses physical training. The phrase physical training is good that Paul uses is merely a basis of comparison for training for godliness is much better. And so, very, very practically speaking today, that means for us, when push comes to shove, do I work out or do I press into those spiritual disciplines that are training me for godliness? Training for godliness, like pick that any day. But Brian, some people say, this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and I gotta sculpt this temple, right? And the text, the Bible, it just speaks, Paul steers right into that. Physical training is good, see. It, it just is. Paul gives us that. I'm in the gym three to five days a week. Can't you tell? <laughs> physical training is good. It's very, very helpful. It's absolutely beneficial. No one is saying that it's not. But the text says, but training for godliness is so much better. And why is it much better? Well, see, physical training is good, yes. Yes but it's good because of the brevity of this life compared with the life that is to come. If you were around here this fall, you might remember I preached a sermon on the game of life in the Games People Play series. And that weekend we put up an enormous red arrow in this room that literally ran the whole length of the room, 15 or 20 feet up there in the air. And that arrow represented, see, all of eternity, right? And it was long. Not as long as eternity, but as long as the room would contain, just about. And then to illustrate the brevity of this life compared with all of eternity, we put a little dot right about up there, this little tiny dot on this great big timeline, this little dot, and it was just tiny. And compared with eternity, that that dot was like minuscule, like nothing on that huge timeline. And see, what Paul is saying is physical training is good because there's a benefit to it right here and right now in this life that we're all living. But this life we're living that's represented, that was represented by that dot on that timeline, training for godliness is so much better. Why? He gives us the answer. This is point three on your outline. Because training for godliness promises benefits in this life and, see, in the life that is to come. Our training for godliness offers not just benefit across the span that is the dot of our life, but across the whole timeline that is all of eternity, and that's a long time. Reality, see, is that no matter how much physical training any of us does, we're all going to die. With a little physical training, a person may be able to affect what ultimately causes their death, but that's about it, really. My friend likes to say it this way, we're all going to die, he says. He stands up in front of large groups of people and proclaims this. You're all going to die. You may not think you're going to die, but you're going to die. One of these days, he says, they're going to take you out to the cemetery. They're going to drop you in a hole. They're going to throw some dirt on your face. And then they're going to go back to some big room somewhere and eat potato salad. And while they eat that potato salad, they're going to say the very same silly thing that people have been talking about at funerals for thousands of years. They're going to be talking about how peaceful you looked in your casket." That's called rigor mortis. It has that tendency, right? But Paul says training for godliness is much better because it's all about an investment now, certainly. Yes, in the dot that represents our life. But more so, it is about an investment in what is to come, the timeline that represents all of eternity. And Paul is letting us know right here in very clear black and white That we are able to prepare right now for all of eternity. For the life that is to come. And see, that's where our hope comes from, isn't it? That's where our hope, because we look around at this world and we go like, whoa. There isn't much hope to be real honest with you. There just isn't. But we can be making an investment today in the life that is to come. Eternity in heaven with God. Eternal life in the future tense, that's about eternal life with God, absolutely. But eternal life in the present sense is all about knowing God personally right here and right now. And both, see, are wide open and available to every person in this room today. Both are wide open and available to every person on planet Earth today, right now. And for those of us who know God and have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus, His invitation to us today is to set ourselves on a course of action which will lead us to a deeper and more mature faith in Him. Those soldiers in the movie 300, they were as capable as they were because of their commitment to a lifetime of very rigorous training. And the very same thing is true when it comes to our depth of godliness, It isn't just going to happen to us through passivity. Training for godliness is very intentional. It is marked by spiritually deepening exercises conducted with regularity, with intensity, and with discipline. And then for those of us who are sitting in this room today who have yet to step across the line of faith in Jesus Christ, right now, in this moment, God is declaring his incredible love over you and for you And today, he is inviting you to take the very first step of training for godliness, which is to step into a relationship with him. And see, right now, in this moment, God is saying to you, no matter how dark the night is, no matter how deep the hole seems, no matter how hard the circumstances in your life are, he is so much bigger than all of that. He is your savior after all. He is your rescuer, see, who is longing to prepare you today for an eternity with him. The 1989 Armenian earthquake needed just four minutes to flatten just about the whole country and kill about 30,000 people. 30,000 people in just four minutes. And moments after that deadly tremor ceased, a dad raced to a certain elementary school to save his son. And when he arrived, he literally saw that the building had been completely leveled. And he stood back and he looked at that mass of stone and rubble, and he remembered a promise that he had made to his son. He said these words, no matter son what happens, I will always be there for you. And in that moment, he was compelled by his own promise. He found an area closest to his son's classroom, and he began to pull back the rocks. Other parents arrived, and they just began sobbing for their children. It's too late, they told the man digging in the rubble. You know they are dead. There's nothing you can do to help. Even a police officer happened by and encouraged him to give up. This is a true story, by the way. But that dad refused, absolutely refused to give up. For eight hours, then 16 hours, then 32 hours. For 36 hours straight, that dad dug. And his hands were raw and his energy was sapped, but he absolutely refused to quit. Finally, after 38 wrenching hours, he pulled back a boulder and he heard his son's voice. And he called out his boy's name, Arman, Armand. And a voice answered back from the darkness, Dad, it's me, he said. And then the boy added these priceless, precious words. I told the other kids, Dad, not to worry. I told them that if you were alive, that you would save me, and when you saved me, they'd be saved too. He shouted, because remember, Dad, you promised no matter what, I'll always be there for you. And see, that right there is the very same promise that God has made to all of us. And lots of us, I know, are looking around at piles of rubble in our life, and we're like, holy cow, what's the way out of this? Is there a God? And the answer is, absolutely, there is a God. And he is there for you today. He's available to you today. And he died, see, to be your savior, to be your rescuer. I invite you, if you would, just to take your things and set them aside. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads and just use this time to speak to God about what's on your heart and your mind. Just tell Him what you're thinking about, if you would, please. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for the next few moments, if you would. You know, as I stand up here on this stage today, I don't have a clue about where you stand in relationship with God. You do, though. Both you and God alone know that. And maybe as you sit here in this room today, you're a Christ follower, and you know that you are on a great course of training for godliness. And if that's you, I just say, way to go. I'm standing up here today cheering you on. Way to go. And maybe as you sit here today, You're a Christ follower, but you admittedly have been pretty passive in your training for godliness. You've just kind of been waiting for it to happen to you. And if that's you, I'd invite you to work hard in these coming days to chart a course of action towards training yourself for godliness. And use your church up to that end. That's why we're here. We want to add fuel to that fire. Just let us know what you need from us to that end we'll help you answer the questions we'll resource you any way possible and maybe just maybe as you sit here in this room today you know that you have yet to take God upon his offer of salvation to you and for you today that's where your training for godliness begins that's like the starting line literally I want you to know that you can settle that once and for all today. You can do that by acknowledging that Jesus loves you, that he is there for you, that he is your rescuer, he's your savior, because he died on the cross to forgive your sin. And you can choose in this moment to put your faith and put your trust in him by the blood that he shed on the cross for you. And if that's you, if you're choosing to do that today, I'd invite you to express that to God and you can do that right now by praying a prayer. You can pray a prayer with me that goes like this, right where you're sitting. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have, but today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. God, with everything in me, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend, and I want you to change me. God, I need you to clean my life up, please. And starting today, God, I make you the boss, the king of my life. And if you prayed with me just then, That's the biggest decision you'll make your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. We believe it's such a big deal around here that we actually ask people to tell us when they made that decision, and I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now, if you would. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I'm the only person looking around the room. I'm just going to ask you, if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yeah, yeah, way to go, buddy. Good job. Just make sure I catch your eye. I don't want to miss anybody. And you right there, way to go. Right now, God is changing you. Way to go. Are there any others? Just make sure I catch your eye, please. I don't want to miss anybody. And you too, right on. God's changing you right now in this moment. You're new. God, we say thanks. Thanks for being our Savior, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, our Friend. God, we're looking to you as our source of hope because we look around this world and there just isn't much. It seems pretty dark. But God, we look to you and we cling to you and we depend on you because of who you are your character, your nature, your perfect, God. And I pray for all of us in this room that we would be a community who is on a course, a trajectory of spiritual growth and development, God. That we would be in constant training for godliness. And that we would give it our best, our all. We wouldn't relegate it just to second place or third place or way down the priority list, God, but that it would be first. We would be pursuing you with an intensity and with a hunger, with a passion and a zeal. Not just to know more. Not just about filling our heads with knowledge and facts, but about our soul being transformed. That we would reflect the image of Christ with perfection and with beauty. God, would you give us strength Give us courage for that journey. It's not easy. You know. We're holding tight to you.